Numbers chapter 27. Um, I knew I was doing this sermon. I've put a lot of prep into this one this week, more so than a normal week, uh, just because of the subject matter I'm dealing with. And uh, I took a little break from my sermon prep. Just uh, I was scrolling online or uh, watching TV, but I saw a, a show or an interview with Shania Twain. Can you all remember Shania Twain? She had the big song that was, Man, What? I Feel Like a Woman. You guys listen to country music, okay? And so I'm not telling you to go out and watch the video or anything like that. But uh, she was on there, and what she was talking about with one of the hostesses on the show was just the way women think versus the way men think and things that women have to think about that men don't. And it got me to thinking, like, some of the stuff they mentioned, like, I've never thought about that in my life. And so I posted something online, like, what are some ways in which women think differently than men and that uh, some things that women have to think about that men don't or where you've been discriminated against? Uh, I, I put that out there. Like, I, and I'll just say this. For guys, like, how many guys in the room would say, you know what, I understand how women think? Raise your hand if you would say, all right, no, no, not one hand went up, right? You guys knew better, all right, than to raise your hand on that. Now, I will say this. How many of you guys in the room are married to a woman who at one time has told you, I know what you're thinking? Raise your hand if you're a guy married to a woman. Like, yeah, like women think they know how we think. And I, I heard the women say, she just said, we do, all right? So... They've got this ESP, I don't know what it is, but men can't think like women. We just don't have the ability to do it. And some of the biggest fights we have are because women want us to be able to read their minds, but we're not like them. I know you, D, I know you can read my mind, but I can't read yours. Well, why not? You know, it's just, so, uh, but there are things they think about that we don't. So like, for an example, like I have never walked out of the Huntington Mall, Barbersville Mall, to check around to make sure no one was following me or that my surroundings were safe when I went to my car. Like, probably no guy in here has done that. But I'm just asked for a raise of hands. Ladies, have you ever walked out of a mall to check to make sure no one's following you or that your surroundings are safe? If you've done that, raise your hand. Like, it's just about every hand of every woman went up here. Like, guys don't think that way. Like, I never understood why girls go to the bathroom in clumps. Like, I always thought, like, can you not pee on your own, you know? <laughs> but in, in the back of their mind, they're thinking someone could be in that room and hurt me. I've never thought about that when I'm going to the bathroom, like somebody might be in there and hurt me. I've, I've never been alone in a room with a man and wondered or perhaps even feared, is he going to make an awkward advance toward me? Could he possibly put me in a position to be hurt? I've never had a man or a woman, for that matter, ask me if I have consulted my wife about a medical procedure or a major pur purchase. That's definitely happened with my wife. You see, women think about these things because they have to. And men don't. So there's something I want to talk about here that women think about, men don't, here in Numbers chapter 27. And something I've heard over and over through this series uh, about the life of Moses is even though that it was 3,400 years ago in a different time, in a different place, completely different continent, different language, different culture, 
how the stories of that that life of Moses 3,400 years ago, how it is still applicable today. How these sermons have applied to people's lives in ways they never expected. And the reason why that's true of all the Bible is because of two things. One, the character of God never changes. It was the same 10,000 years ago as it will be 10,000 years from now. And should the Lord tarry, the character of humanity hasn't changed. And it's not going to until the Lord changes us radically from the inside out. It's still the same. And that's why this book still speaks with power to this day. Today I'm going to talk about something rather sensitive. And uh, it has to do with religion and the rights of women. Now I'm sad to report to you, as I have studied through this process, that when it comes to women's rights treating women with respect. Sadly, religion makes it harder on women than in the absence of religion. Typically, I'm not saying Christianity, I'm saying all religions. In fact, the more influence that a religion has on its government, typically the less civil rights women have from that government or honored by that government. There's an inverse relationship with religious influence on a government and the rights of women. Religion is hard on our ladies. From the Muslim sacred texts, they have three, the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah. These are straight quotes from them, objective. It's not just a historical rendering. This is what it says, that men can have up to four wives. That women are like property for men, and when you marry her, you can approach her to do with her whatever you will. It allows for men to have women as sex, sex slaves, to trade them back and forth. And it comes right out and says that women are deficient to men in intelligence. The Hindu sacred texts are worse. These aren't small religions between Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, you're talking about four to five billion people living under this umbrella. According to Hindu sacred text, a married man can give permission to another man to have relations with his wife and it not be considered adultery. But a woman, a woman can't give the same permission for her man to another woman. They are of lower intelligence, and not only that, they are a lower created order than men according to Hindu writings. If a woman doesn't give a man a son, he can divorce her and marry another woman who might give him a son. Well, now we know it's not her fault. Women cannot have property rights, according to the Hindu scriptures. They cannot remarry. You mean 25 years old, your husband killed in a car wreck, you can't remarry the rest of your life if you're following the Hindu scriptures. But if a man dies... He can marry another woman that night. So what does our sacred text teach about the value of women? Now, I have to make a disclaimer before I get into this. We have to understand this about the Bible. Sometimes people throw darts at the scriptures because of the history it records. What I mean by that is oftentimes the Bible records in a historical event, but it doesn't necessarily condone that historical event. You follow what I'm saying? You might see a character in the Bible rape a woman, but that doesn't mean the Bible condones it. You might see someone in the Bible married two or three or four women, 
But that doesn't mean that it's a good thing. In fact, usually when you see these things that affect women's rights in a negative manner, something bad happens later to teach you overall, if you do this, this will go badly for you. Today, as we look at something in the scripture, a story from Moses's, from, from Moses's life, we're going to see women get some rights that no group of women, to our knowledge, ever had in the ancient Near East. Moses is going to elevate the status of women like something we've never seen before. So let's turn here. In Numbers chapter 27, we'll start with verse 1. Okay? Then drew near. This is after the rebellion at Korah, what we had talked about from a few weeks ago. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, um, the son of Sephir, Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mekur, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. So you've got these ladies that are mentioned who are the daughters of this man who's passed away. And here are their names. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tizra. Okay? Now, I just want to point this out. I don't want to go all into Mormonism today, but in the entire Book of Mormon, there are over 300 names of men, but there are only six names of women in the entire book. The Book of Numbers mentions as many women in one chapter as what the entire Book of Mormon does. The Bible does something for women that no other ancient or even recent biblical book does. And they come, watch this, and they stand before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they're going to say something, but that right there alone has got to grab your attention. Culturally, we don't think anything about it now in 21st century America, but back then that was a big deal. Women had no standing or rights before the courts at that time. Women weren't allowed to come in before, especially the high priest, the, the Supreme Court, just to bring their complaint straight up to Moses. Millions of people out there watching. So here come these five women just come marching in right in front of Moses. And, and all the judges and the good old boys are up front. And they got to be looking at like, who are these women to come and address Moses directly? What right do they think they have to do this? This is a big ask for what they're doing. And they just come right out and say their complaint. They said, our father died in the wilderness. And he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died for his own son, sin, and he had no sons. Now, why do they say this? Do you remember the story of Korah? God destroyed Korah, the two guys that sided with him, and the other 250 people that followed him. The promised land has been given to them, but because they followed a rebel, that land which was promised them was taken away and was going to be given to more faithful people. But what the ladies are arguing here is that shouldn't happen to us and our family. While our dad was a sinner and he didn't go into the promised land like he was supposed to 40 years ago when he was a younger man, he had nothing to do with Korah and their rebellion. So the land that was promised to him, we should still get it because we weren't a part of that rebellious act against you, Moses. But they had a problem, is that land always stayed with the boys. And up until this time in every other ancient Near East culture, if a man died and only had daughters, 
his brothers, that is the uncles of the girls, would divide his land between them because women had no land rights. And so here they are, and they're coming and say, our dad is dead, and our land, all our uncles are starting to take all our land away from him, everything our dad owns. All we're saying is when we go to the promised land, we'd like to have some land with his name on it, to remember his name. They say, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because our dad had no son? And then a really bold request, a bold ask. Moses, we want you to do something that's never been done before. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Don't give it to our uncles. Give it to us. Now, this is amazing, and I want you to see something about these ladies, something they had. It was the courage to ask. The courage to ask. It, you're breaking all social norms, but they looked at it, and they were like, should it be this way? It's the courage to challenge the status quo. Now, this is something in my heart that just comes naturally to ask the question, why? Why do we do it this way? The people who love control and traditions a lot of times don't like me very much because I'm constantly saying, is there a better way to do it than what we've been doing it? And that comes with the courage to ask. I gained this courage to ask uh, as a young man. I, I liked girls when I was 14, 15 years old, and I wanted girls to go out with me or go to the prom or whatever. But unlike some of you studly young men in here, uh, I often was rejected. I did, listen, I was just a little old nothing when I was in ninth and 10th grade. I didn't hit puberty until like I was a junior in high school, okay? I was littler than everybody. I was smaller. Uh, I wasn't the most masculine guy right off the bat. And so uh, a lot of times when I would ask girls out, they would say no. But I learned you just got to keep on asking. And so I did. And eventually some girl would feel sorry for me and go. I learned that skill. I'm also a fisherman, okay? For you guys that fish, you know how it goes. You get out there and you fish all day. I remember when I was in high school, we went on an overnight fishing trip and nobody was catching anything. And we were sitting around, and finally guys were getting so frustrated. Two o'clock in the morning, they were like, that's it. I'm not fishing anymore. I'm going to bed or I'm leaving. Four o'clock in the morning, more guys dropped out. Eventually, when we got to six, they're back there sleeping or whatever. Six a.m., it's starting to get daylight, and I get a little nibble. And then, boom, I get a big bite, and I pulled in a 72-pound catfish. And they're like, Willis, man, how'd you pull in that big catfish? How'd you catch that big thing? I said, I'm not like you guys. I just didn't give up. I kept casting. And so I took that principle with me to West Virginia University. I asked girl after girl after girl to go out with me. And they said, no, 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 no. But finally I brought to myself the courage to ask and thank God I caught me a 115 pound catfish named D. Willis, all right, or D. Bowman at the time. All right, like what did I have to lose? Sometimes guys would say, man, Willis, I don't, doesn't that embarrass you? I'm like, no, I'll never see these girls again. Who cares, all right? What's the worst thing they're going to do? They're saying, no, I'm not going out with you. I'm already not going out with them. I got nothing to lose. <laughs> 
So I encourage you that. Like when I go to the store, I ask for a discount. When we, when we were on vacation a few weeks ago, we're in there, the place is sold out. I said, hey, will you give me the presidential suite? Out living, like we're full and you beg, you beg, you booked the cheapest room in the place. I said, I know, I know. But if the room's sitting there empty, you might as well give it to me. It's my wife's 50th birthday, man. Come on. It's coming up. Oh, I don't know if we can do that. And the next day, you know what I did? I didn't take no for an answer. I went back to the first man. I speak to the manager, please. The manager told me no. And then I said, you know, uh, who's your boss? All right. So I came the next day. I said, I need to speak to Cherie. All right. They were like, what do you need with Cherie? I have a very important question, question for her. Okay, here comes Sari. I said, Sari, are you the boss? Yes, you're the boss. I said, you can make the decisions around here. You're the big F.A. Yes. Okay, so here's the deal. Like, it's my wife's 50th birthday. I know that the presidential suite's open. Nobody's in there. I'm going to be here five more nights. How about putting me and my wife in there? And she looked at me, and she says, you know what? Since you asked and for your wife, I'll do it. There we go. We go up there, all right? My wife is embarrassed to death. She's sitting in there. But you know what? 15 minutes later, she was sitting on that balcony looking over the ocean. Enjoying the fact that I just asked. This is what I want to share with you this morning. Listen, whatever blessing that is that might come your way, whatever embarrassment, you, listen, take the courage to ask. You got nothing to lose. If you already don't have something, if somebody tells you no, you have the same thing after that. But maybe someday God will give you favor and that girl actually will go out with you. Okay? Don't be afraid. Have the courage to ask. Not only did they have the courage to ask, watch this. Moses then, even though this has never been done before, and Moses easily could have said to these girls, nothing like this has ever been asked of God or anybody else. Moses asked on their behalf. So he goes back and he asks God. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. I can just see Moses going, oh, we've done it wrong all these years. Now, why did God say that these girls are right? And why is he going to give them a possession? The answer to that question is what? Because they asked. Just because something's never been done a certain way, don't let that stop you from asking. Consult the Lord. That's what Moses did. And Moses went back and he looked at the scriptures that God had given him and then God spoke to him. And there was nothing in there that said women can't have land. There was no reason they couldn't have that. It's just never been asked before. But not only does God answer their prayer because of what was asked, they were just asking, can we have a piece of land? Watch. God said, not only shall you give them the possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers, uncles, right? They thought they were going to land. But I want you to transfer the inheritance of their fathers, of their father to them. In other words, not only do they get the land, they get everything in their daddy's tent and the contents thereof. You get it all. Why did they get it? Because they had the courage to stand before Moses and ask, will you just check the Bible on this? This is what I'm asking you, church. How many things did we do around here that we've always done just because, watch here, they're traditional but not necessarily biblical? You see, some things we think are biblical are actually just traditional. Now, I don't, I don't want anybody to get bent out of shape this morning. 
I'll just tell you now, I should have said the lesser, like don't send me emails on this, okay? I, don't get upset about what I'm saying. Don't let this freak you out. I'm gonna, we're back to church, we've done it here, this, you know, you know, people are gonna go into the control shakes, okay? Just don't send me a text, all right? Because I'm not gonna change, all right? So listen, you wanna send me a chapter and verse, I'll listen to you. But here's the deal. Just ask him a question. Just ask him a question. I'm not changing any policy. I'm just asking a question. Where in the Bible does it say only men deacons can serve communion? Where does it say that? I mean, if you got that chapter and verse, maybe that's your version of the Bible, the super lapsarian King James 1632. I mean, I don't know. I can't find that verse in my Bible. So then the question is why we do it that way. Where does it say you got to do this or that? It, this is what, there's an urban legend story. I don't know if it's true or not. I heard this a long time ago. But there's a young girl, just 23, 24 years old, just got married, moved away from her family. It was Easter time. And at Easter, her family always had a ham. And so she went to make the ham, and she cut off one end, cut off the other, and then put it in her casserole dish, covered it with aluminum foil, stuck it in the oven. We're a new husband, so we're doing it. He said, why would you cut the end off the ham? She said, well, that's why you cook a ham. He said, I've watched my mom cook ham for years. I've never seen her cut the end off the ham. She said, well, that's just the way you do it. He was like, okay, whatever. Good move by honeymooner, all right? So uh, the girl started thinking. And so she uh, calls her mom, and she said, Mom, I'm just making the Easter ham. Why don't we cut one end off the other before we put it in the casserole dish, put the one full of it, put it in the oven? And the mom said, uh, well, that's just the way you cook a ham. She said, but why do we do it? She said, I don't know. I've always watched my mom do it. Your grandmother always made it that way. She said, well, ask Grandma. She said, okay, I'll call her. So she calls Grandma. She said, Mom, we always cut, fix the ham this way. Yeah, yeah. Why do we cut one, out, one end off, cut the other end off, cover them full, put it in? Why do we cook it that way? She said, well, that's the way your Grandma taught me. And she said, she's right here. I can ask her. So she asked the great-grandmother, she said, Grammy Bertha, why do we cut off one end of the ham and the other end of the ham, put it in the casserole dish, put it in the foil, put it in the oven? Why do we cook it that way? Is that the way you have to cook ham? She said, good heavens, no. She said, it's that pan we got. It's not big enough for a full ham, so I had to cut off the end so it would fit. Four generations thinking you had to cut a ham a certain way for it to cook correctly when really it was just about the size of the original pan. It just makes me wonder how many things around here are we doing or are you doing in your life that you think are biblical, but in reality, they're just traditional. And I wonder how much is that true, especially when it comes to dealing with people who are minorities, with women, with people that don't have power in our society, and if you're in power or authority, you don't even notice these things that happen. This is what the book of Proverbs says. For those of us who have power, influence, a command, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, this is a metaphor. It's not just talking about people who can't speak. What's it saying? General principle is speak up for those people who what? can't speak up for themselves. Open your mouth. Don't just sit there silently. 
Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Command. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Why does it command those who have influence and power to defend the rights of the poor and needy? Because the poor and the needy can't defend themselves. Those women had no authority that day to, to change anything about the law. So Moses had to open his mouth, even though you know all the men are standing around like, what, what is going on here? We've never done it this way. We didn't do it this way back in Egypt. But you're, you're going to disrupt the whole order of things. All the uncles are over there like, Moses, what are you doing? That should have been our land. David later, later wrote, give justice to the weak. What is justice? Where you see something wrong, you make it right. And to the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Once you fix something, you also have to keep maintaining it. Because if you don't guard the rights of the weak, the poor, the minority, those who are left out on the outside, okay? If you don't guard those rights, evil, selfish people will come in right after you they've been given and take those rights away. Prophet Isaiah says, learn to do good. To seek justice. Correct oppression. Don't just recognize it, fix it. But for those of us that don't, the Bible says, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What good is a water, a drink of water, if it's got mud all in it? And the answer to that is what? It's not. You don't want it. What kind of righteous man are you if you see something going on and you don't rise up and do something to fix it? I want you to watch this video about something happened back during the days of World War II. I visited Dachau in southern Germany. It was the largest concentration camp of the Nazis back in 1944 and 45. And I saw this quote on the board, and I found this video online. L listen to the story of a Protestant pastor who watched what was going on and did nothing about it. Martin Niemöller was a German clergyman, a Protestant who watched Hitler's rise to power as though he were a member of the audience. In 1944, as a prisoner in the Nazi death camp at Dachau, he wrote the following. In Germany, they came first for the communists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics. And I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time, nobody was left to speak up. It's Martin Luther King weekend. This is a quote from him. He says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I'll just be honest with you. I, sometimes I get myself in trouble because I'll be around people who are talking about my friends, and it's not my fault, and it's not my fight. But if I'm in a room and someone starts saying something negative about Isaac because I'm Isaac's friend, I'm going to ask them, What'd you say when you talked to Isaac about this? I'm just not going to let somebody badmouth somebody I know and love 
even if it's not my fight. Because here's the deal. You talk bad about somebody I love, somebody in my church family, you've made it my fight. But how many know most people don't have friends like that? That's what breaks your hearts the most, isn't it not? Not that mean people who are acting in their mean nature, character, say something about you. But it's your friends who are in the room who didn't stand up on your behalf when it happened. And that breaks your heart. Now, why did Moses write this about women? Why did God say they deserve that land even more so than their uncles? Why did he break free from tradition to give these women equal status in this situation? Well, it's because Moses had just recently penned these words that God gave him. Going back to the order of creation, this is unlike any other ancient Near East document of its time. On the day, sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, them. Now, what does he mean them? Just men? Is it just men going to have authority over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth? And knowing that that one verse could be confusing, he clarifies here in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women are created equally in the image of God and deserve the respect and esteem that comes from being a child of the Lord. No difference between the two. So treat them equally. Pay them equally. Respect them equally. And if we ever want to know how we should live any area of our lives, the ultimate example is looking how Jesus treated women. Whatever Jesus did, that's a good model to follow. Now, to understand Jesus' way here, I, I, I have to first explain something about their culture. The Apostle Paul is going to re write about the educational system of their day. And here's Apostle Paul sitting at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the top law professor in Jerusalem, which was the Harvard of its day. Number one guy in the world. And so Paul had the privilege of sitting at Gamaliel's feet. That's where the number one student sat. Now, when I was in ninth grade, I had a teacher who taught like this. It worked for me. It was probably bad for the lower achieving students, but this is the way Mr. Smith did history class. I was, uh, I was a pretty good student, but there was a better student in our class. Her name was Julia Lowe. She ended up being our valedictorian, redhead Julia Lowe. And I looked at her red hair all the time because I sat behind her in class. Because the way Mr. Smith did it, whoever got the highest grade on the monthly exam sat in the front seat at the feet of Mr. Smith. And he would just brag on them all the time. And I was always sitting behind Julia Lowe. Now, the way it worked is he would start out with the lowest grade in the class. This would never fly today. 
If you were the dummy of the class, you sat in the back right corner, the furthest way from Mr. Smith, okay? Terrible educational technique, but that's the way they did it, all right? God bless Dr. Mr. Smith, it, but this worked for me. They're back there. They go all the way, and sure enough, man, it'd come down, and he says, and a 97 on the exam, Mr. Steve Willis, you can have your seat there, number two. And he knew it burnt me up to say that. And I would sit there. If I got a 96, she'd get a 97. If I got a 97, it seemed like she'd got a 98. One time I got a 98.5, thought it'd be enough. She got a 99.5. It just, it always came. And one day he was going through the list, and he said, and with a 97 on the exam, Miss Julia Lowe, and I here I was sitting in my seat, and she had to get up out of the seat at Mr. Smith's feet, stand up, walk back. I stood up, let her sit in my number two seat, and I started singing the song from the Jeffersons. Well, we're moving on up <laughs> to the east side. I said, give it to me, Mr. Smith. Mr. Willis got a 99 on the exam. Yep, that's right. All you peons behind me, don't you wish you were me right now? And I sat there. Now, I was an immature ninth grader, but I finally had my shot. Man, that was a big deal to sit at the feet of Mr. Smith. It was a big deal for Paul to say, I was a student of the best law professor in the entire world at the time. That's what rabbis did. And the only way you could come to sit at the feet of the rabbi was with a special invitation from them. Now, in Jewish society, the rabbi would teach in a synagogue such as this one, and the men would be allowed to sit down here, and all your wives and kids would have to sit up there in the back where the narthex is. Women were, and the best men, the best, you know, a lot of churches still do it this way. The deacons all sit down front, right? They come in there in their coat and tie, and the, the deacons are sitting right up front because they're the big leaders. And, you know, you're closer you're sitting to the front, you're the big guy, all right? That's the way a lot of churches still do it. It's the way the synagogues did it then. Watch how Jesus taught. All right, well, first of all, look at what Paul says. He says, I was a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Okay? That's what it means to be educated at the feet. I was the top student. I got that special seat. Now, Jesus, let's go back a few years. Jesus is still on earth. He and his disciples are going their way, the twelve. And Jesus enters a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She's got this big, nice house. They're probably fairly well-to-do, but she's got a little sister. Her little sister's sharp. How do we know? She had a sister called Mary, watch, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. No woman would ever sit at the feet of a rabbi for any reason. But the only reason she would have been sitting there this day is why? Because Jesus recognized today you're my number one student. And just showing off just how smart she really was. Talked about this at first service. Uh, Madison, are you here? Did she leave? She was here first. Also, I talked about her. She was here. She heard. Like, we, we have interns every year, and I don't discriminate from being in our intern program, being a male or a female. And uh, we've had female interns. Let me tell you what, a lot of times they're some of our sharpest students. Sarah Bryan, man, she was, she was in John's class, showed him up all the time. All right? Just great students. I teach them the same. I love them the same. I give them assignments. They teach in class the same. 
But not only that, watch what Jesus does. Soon afterwards, this is in his ministry, he's going through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. Now, now I've got to say this. If there's anybody in the history of the planet who didn't care about what culture or tradition said to him, it was Jesus, right? But yet when he picked his 12 apostles that would rule over the Jewish kingdom, all 12 of them were men. But he also did something that nobody else did during his day. Also traveling with them, Jesus would have never been alone one-on-one with them, but in a group setting, also with him were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. He's got a woman. She's also known as someone who used to be a prostitute. So Jesus is traveling around with someone who just a couple months ago was a hooker and had demons coming out of her. And not only that, he had Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Well, who's that? It's Herod's household manager. This is the most violent family. This is the family. This guy is managing the money, works for the king that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. The same family who's cutting off the head of Jesus' cousin, the guy who baptized him, John the Baptist. She's a part of that, but now she's a follower of Jesus. And also Susanna, she probably had a story all to her own. And many others who provided for them out of their own means. I mean, this was scandalous back in the day. Do you understand that? Going from village to village, men and women traveling together. Do you remember the story of Jesus when he was young? When they left the temple when he was 12, it took them a whole day before they noticed Jesus was gone. Because Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph, and Joseph thought Jesus was with Mary. And it wasn't until the evening that they came together because the men and women didn't even walk beside each other. In this case, Jesus is not only having them walk together, they're studying the word of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God together throughout all the land of Israel. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the traditionalists are like, what is this guy? Who is this guy that's running around with girls that are hookers and demon-possessed? I mean, this was got to be a little bit weird. What if I say, hey, I'm going to take John and I'm going to take Josh this week and we're going to go study the word. But Danny Joe, as one of my bosses, I'm just letting you know, I've got a couple of hookers we're going to take with us. We're going to be staying in some hotels away, but we'll all be together. That's fine, right? Well, hey, I mean, this is some crazy stuff. Steve, what are you doing here? But that's what Jesus did. Why did he do it? Because once you're saved and become a part of the kingdom of God, Paul later writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, and you all have the same rights and privileges within the church and the world at large. What a challenge to their society. Now, I've got to say this. Whether you're coming out of a violent home, a minority, you're male, female, been a prostitute, drug addict, even if you were possessed by demons, Jesus is in the business 
of bringing you out from the dregs of society and giving you equal inheritance with all the other children of God. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the moment you give your life to Jesus, you are on equal footing with every other believer in the world. Something special about him, and that can only come with a radically transformed, regenerative heart. And Jesus will do that for you as well. But as I close this, with that gospel invitation to come and follow Jesus no matter what you've done, he's going to love you, he's going to accept you. I've got to say this as well. Some of you are sitting here thinking this morning, but Steve, aren't there biblical restrictions on what women can and can't do? Let me tell you what, that's probably another sermon, but it's not the point of this one. And I think just the fact that I know so many people are asking that question in their hearts right now, I've got to ask you another question. If I would have just preached a sermon on the value of men and how they need to step up as fathers and how they need to be treated with respect, would anyone have asked me, but Steve, aren't there biblical restrictions as to what men can and can't do in the church? Probably not. Probably not. The fact is, there are hundreds of restrictions about what men can and can't do in the church, where they can and can't serve, based on a number of things. But I can do a sermon on men and nobody sends me a text saying, but what about this verse? But what about that verse? But I talk about the equality of women, and people are like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think this brings to light the misogyny, our own bias, even on a sermon like this. That I can't do a sermon about how women are equal to men with somebody worried about some verse in 1 Timothy or 1 Corinthians. Afraid people will get the wrong impression. But we're not afraid that men will get the wrong impression if I say God will love you no matter what, even if you've been divorced three times. There's a double standard. And that's what I'm trying to address today. Listen, we all have lenses through which we read and interpret the Bible. Mine changed the day that my daughter was born. Just tell you. But you know what didn't change? The Word of God. And there were certain things that I thought and grew up with that I thought about women, what women could and couldn't do, but they're nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. And everyone has these lenses from liberal and conservative camps, and what these lenses do is they cause us to draw up lines about what separates us instead of us focusing our time and energy on what we share in common. And so I'll just close with this thought. Can we all share this thought in common as we leave here today? That little girls need to be valued as much as little boys. That both little boys and little girls can learn the word of God and both probably equally, as far as the dispensed gift of the Holy Spirit, have the gift of teaching the word of God and we need to foster these gifts in both genders. 
worry about who they're going to be teaching and how they're going to be teaching later. Can we at least develop the gifts of teaching in both male and female so they can do what the Bible tells them to do and how the Bible tells them to do it? We are all created in God's image, and therefore we have to treat each other with equality and respect, and when we see other people not doing that, for someone who doesn't have power, authority, we have to speak out and speak up. And so though, even, even though our roles differ within the church, just like, listen, if we speak of the roles of the Father in the Godhead and the roles of the Holy Spirit and how they have different roles, would anyone in here say, but the Holy Spirit is not equal to the Father? Don't we say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God? So why can't we understand the concept that just because women may have different roles in the, in the church and men may have different roles in the family, that they're all still equal in the sight of God? Why is that such a hard concept to understand? Where you see the weak, the oppressed, speak out. Question tradition. Ask the hard questions. Expect a resistance. Do only what the Word of God says. And let's do our best not to place our own traditional rules on top of it. 